0: Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. On today's show, we are joined by Samir Kaji. Samir is the co-founder and CEO of Allocate. Allocate is a platform that allows advisors and family offices to uh, access venture capital funds and it's technology-based and you're you know easy onboarding and all that, all that good jazz. And the jazz is so good that we invested in them I, probably a year and a half ago. And the thinking was that there are, as I mentioned on the, on the in the conversation we have with Samir, there's a lot of companies that have done fairly well bringing alternative investments to advisors, private credit, real estate, et cetera. The venture industry is different. It really is about relationships and access, uh, and it's not it's not easy to get access to the best of the best. And so Samir and his team have been doing that for a long time. They're great people, great relationships. He said it's
1: it's said, it, relationships are, are, are it pretty much in venture capital. Yeah. That's the, that's the thing. Yeah, mon-
0: money's not the thing. It's about relationships. So uh, on today's show, we discuss, we spent the bulk of the conversation talking about the state of venture, where we are in relationship. Obviously, this is a much more sober market, to say the least, compared to 2021, where we saw some wild shit flying, uh, and we are now definitely on the other side of that. So- Here is our conversation with Samir from Allocate.
1: Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about
2: markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.
0: We're joined today by Samir Kaji. Samir is the founder and CEO of Allocate. Samir, welcome
2: back to the show. Thanks for having me, guys.
0: All right. So we're going to be spending the next 30 minutes or so talking about venture capital uh, where you fit in the ecosystem. But before we get into the state of the industry, we tend, as investors, tend to think about venture capital through the lens of investing. Um, but we don't often discuss why venture capital as an idea is so important and all of the benefits that everyone in society gets to take advantage of whether or not you're an investor. Can can we just maybe talk about like the good that and I don't want to like overstate, overstate it, but but seriously, Venture Capital has provided wonderful benefits with the companies that they've invested into the services and products that they provide to Americans and, and people all over the world. Just just talk about that idea
2: for a second. Well well I think that maps back to what Venture invests in, which are technology companies that Have kind of reshaped our entire lives the way we work you know of course right now we're on riverside which is a venture-backed company but going back you know 30 40 50 years to the early days of venture it was the only type of equity source that was willing to invest in companies that were at the very inception phase of their lives so companies like google amazon were all companies that were venture funded and at a time where you know, the first check in those companies were done at a time where there was a pitch deck. Maybe there was an idea on, an, on a napkin. And absent the, uh, the venture capital funding source, these companies would never have been able to go on to build and scale to what they have now. And so as you've thought about venture over the last, you know, let's say, 40 years, it's always behind creating these massive super cycles of technology innovation. So going back from mainframe computing to personal computing, to the internet, to mobile cloud, now AI, these are all things that were enabled by the venture capital industry. And of course, over the last 25 years, we've seen the number of public companies in the U.S. decrease by you know, roughly, you know, it's cut in half. And these companies not only stay private longer, but the necessity for a funding source that can help those companies get to a point where the public markets will take them is just much more important.
0: I saw uh, a tweet today that Uber was either founded on this day 13 years ago, or they got their first money or whatever it was. And it was, I think they were raising at a $5 million valuation. The company now has a $90 billion market cap. So obviously the the venture capitalists in there have had a hell of a run and venture capital has had a hell of a run. I mean, let's be real. This was like, certainly in the aughts and, and the teens and I guess culminating with like the fever pitch of everybody doing venture capital uh, in the early 20s. Uh, but we are on the other side of that euphoric mania uh, in all markets, but certainly in venture as well. There's a there's a, an index, Refinitiv Venture Capital Index. I don't know how this is. I don't know what's in here. Maybe you do, but I'm looking at this chart and uh, it's down 50% from the peak, which Feels, I don't know if light is the right word. It feels right. It feels right. How how does it feel to you?
2: I mean, look, there's going to be a lot of pain that continues to happen. You know, we were, we just exited a, you know, long term ZERP period where everything was up and to the right. There was so much capital sloshing around that in the private markets, you had a complete divorce from reality. And, And the public markets face this too, right? So we saw 2021 being one of the, you know, most frothy markets we've ever seen for gross stocks, that filtered into the private markets. And a lot of these companies were fundamentally financed on the basis that the public markets and the multiple expansion that had happened would continue. And of course, now that's not happened, you have a lot of companies that are sitting there in the private markets that just simply have to be marked down. Now, those aren't death nails to these companies. In fact, you know, you think about Facebook. Facebook actually had a down in the in the private markets, I think a lot of people overreact by seeing down rounds when you realize that the public markets have down rounds every single day. And, you know, we sometimes forget the fact that, you know, companies go through journeys and they go through ups and downs. And in 2020 and 21, companies were just funded at valuations that, you know, actually anticipated something very different than what we've seen over the last 19 months. So it, it feels right. And, you know, you talked about Uber. Uber actually was started in two thousand, late 2008, early 2009, during one of the toughest periods. Airbnb did the same thing. And what you have is a resetting of everything, resetting of expectation, resetting of values. You have, you know, what we would consider the grifters leaving and the tourists leaving, and people that are actually building things, you know, for the long run, that now are staying in it because capital constraints are so difficult to navigate. And so I- I, I like times of sobriety. I started my career at the peak of the uh, dot com bubble in, in the late nineties, and then went through you know the uh, the dot com you know collapse two years later, and so times like this are just n- a natural cyclical overlay to what venture capital is.
0: I'm so glad you mentioned that. So, Bennett, we've spoken over the years a million times about does zero in did the zero interest era change how a pension fund will allocate. In other words, are they really going to take money out of bonds and put them into stocks, and take money out of stocks and put them into venture capital? And I think some of that obviously happened to the extent that it did. Some of it might have been overstated. You know, I'm sure it varies by by company. But what is what is hard to argue is the distortion that zero interest rates created for. How loosey goosey investors were with the money that their companies were doing, right? It was just build product market fit, get market share. We could subsidize it. Doesn't matter. I remember in two thousand, I don't know, sixteen or seventeen. Well, it was probably a, it was a podcast pitch, so it must have been twenty eighteen or so. Where Ben and I were talking to somebody, and it was a neat idea. And I can't remember if it was free. And we were like, well, how do you make money? And they were like, oh, we're not worried about that. And we were like, sort of laughing, and I think we said like, "Oh, thank you, venture capitalists." But that era that we that we you know it was it was a good run. It was a decade, right, of Uber losing money on every ride of just everything that the consumer imagined was was heavily subsidized and everything was artificially uh, cheap. That era is obviously over, and then that culminated with just this boom of crazy valuations, crazy multiples, crazy rounds. Crazy speed with which the rounds got done. Like we are, we that that's done. Are you seeing any any remnants of that, or is that just completely buried at this point?
2: I think it's largely buried, and you know, we could put AI maybe in this separate bucket because I do think AI still exhibits some of the the craziness that we you know saw pre two thousand twenty two. You know what happened during the period that you just described. You know, let's call it two thousand eleven to two thousand twenty one. Was not only the amount of capital, but the incentives that were in place. So if you think about venture as an assembly line, right, you raise a a company, raises a seed round, then they have to raise a series A, series B, series C. There's always a downstream buyer. And what companies and investors realized was that there were downstream buyers that were willing to pay a higher price, usually based on one fundamental metric, which is top line revenue and revenue growth. No different than what we saw in the late 90s when it was eyeballs. And so companies were manufacturing growth only to understand that they could just get to the next round at a higher valuation, secondaries. But if you look at under the uh, the hood and, and look at the quality of those revenues, we call them dirty revenues because ultimately, if I pay $2 to make a dollar, probably not a good long-term business model. But that's what it was, is it was buying Facebook ads. But the market was buying it. Even the public markets were buying it, right? So you saw the SPAC explosion of 2020 and twenty one. So from an incentive standpoint, you were incented to put a lot of money to work, have somebody else mark it up. You can raise the next fund and and raise much more capital, get more management fees. And it was a rinse and repeat. And a lot of people won't necessarily admit that that was what was happening. And you would always look to justify when you're in the moment that the markets change. We're in a new paradigm. But effectively, gravity has now come back in. And outside of AI, which still remains frothy, Everything else has, you know, course corrected to what the actual reality in the public markets
1: are and the fact that people have more options to where they invest their capital. Taking the speculation piece off the table, because obviously that was a big part of it with the 0% rates. Financially, couldn't you make the argument if we're we're doing a private versus private comparison that venture capital is in a much better space than private equity because there's not as much reliance on debt, right? So you don't, the, the higher interest rates, I think eventually... Are going to make such a higher hurdle rate for private equity and adding leverage that obviously you, you need the funding to still come in for venture funds or venture firms, but or startup firms. But since there's not as much debt, that financially it's not as big of a burden there.
2: So so yeah, I mean we've we've seen the, the, uh, the you know the downside of interest rates in the uh, in the world of mortgages right now. The mortgage you know rates are over eight percent. Private equity, as you mentioned, does heavily use leverage when it comes to acquisitions venture doesn't it's an equity play so yes you know from the standpoint of you know returns actually you know i would make the case that venture just what i've seen historically is going to outperform and it actually has outperformed private equity the the knock against venture is it's a longer term illiquid asset category slightly more risky depending on where you invest and how you invest in venture and during times like this people tend to not be return focused but risk oriented and so that's why we still we have so much capital flowing into things like private credit, secondaries and private equity versus early stage venture which logically would make sense when valuations are down and founders today have to exhibit better behavior in terms of building companies but to your to your point yes interest rates do matter in the private equity world
1: i'm also curious about like doubling down in venture. Because the, the market cap or the index and everything is down and valuations are down, is there more doubling down on companies? Obviously, people wish that they could take back a lot of those investments and valuations from 2021 or whatever, but is there more doubling down or are a lot of venture capital firms just saying, you know what, we, we overpaid, let's not double down in, on that mistake and let's fund something new or just fund these other handful of firms. How much of that is going on now where you've seen this big repricing? It's a tough, you know, tough
2: thing to, you know, answer in a in a, in a blanket way. So I think it really depends on com- company by company. And what you're describing is, do you put uh, bad money? Uh, I mean, sorry, good money after bad, right? So you invest in this company; it hasn't really scaled yet. The company needs, uh, you know, some level of capital to sustain. What I'm seeing in those cases is, in what we've seen over the last 12 months, is a lot of those companies are getting spoon fed by their existing investors. At different terms, maybe it's a convertible note financing, to see if the company can you know cross over to you know cross over the spectrum and sustain during this really tough time. There's other companies like Hopin that were a product of you know the pandemic, right? That you know soared to you know this massive valuation and then ultimately sold for fifteen million. I think for, from a VC standpoint, you know the question you know really is around this dynamic at the board level of. What is going to produce the best return for that existing fund that might be compromised because of the high pr- price I paid? And it re- it really is company by company. I do think there's some good companies out there that are getting absolutely obliterated in the valuation market where the venture investors are doubling down. And there's others where it's just very clear that there's no product market fit. There's no chance that this company is going to, you know drive anything but a one x return. And in those cases, those companies are either going away quietly or getting acquired, essentially for parts. Hopefully, at an amount enough to take care of the preferred shareholders, which are the venture investors.
0: I want to go through some charts from CB Insights. They do every quarter. They do uh, a state of venture global trends, and uh, in the most recent quarter, there was six thousand one hundred deals, give or take that's down from a peak of damn my eyes suck it looks 12, like a, 11 12,000 okay so 12, cut in half, basically so cut in half the number of deals the 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 amount of funding also more than cut in half from the peak but up from q2 around flat from q1 so it, it seems to be stabilizing but it's still a lot of money 64 billion dollars that was invested into these companies around half of that came from the united states 64 billion dollars is a lot higher than 0 like stuff is still happening.
2: Yeah, stuff is still happening and there's areas that are a little bit more insulated uh than others like the seed and early stage tend to you know still you know you still have investments because at the seed level you know whether it's an 8 million dollar valuation or 10 you know companies are still being founded during this time. The growth stage markets are where we've seen the uh the biggest you know reversion and it's partly because people need to understand like how do you price something in a market that is uncertain on a go forward basis. It's also the fact that many of these companies really don't deserve that quantum of capital that they were received. I saw a stat recently that the average unicorn, which there's about twelve hundred unicorns right now, have raised a median amount of three hundred and fifty million dollars, which <sighs> makes absolutely no sense in terms of why do you need that much capital? You have companies like Viva and WhatsApp that were these massive scale companies that you know. I think Viva raised like four million. WhatsApp was you know r- roughly 50 million or less and and so a lot of these companies are just in this you know kind of death zone, but I think that the biggest thing is that we've seen is the crossover funds start to depart, right So during the peak times the Tigers, the co2s, the D ones, um, you know firms like that were were the ones writing massive checks in debt. Um, so for example, you look at some of the big firms Insight um, and Tiger, collectively they raised 33 billion dollars between and you know, the two of them in two fonts right these are just two fonts and tiger was writing checks at a, at a pace of a billion dollars a month so when you extract that level of capital you're going to have the late stage market which was the vast majority of the
1: capital deployed completely atrophy to what it is right now how have you noticed the changing dynamic between vcs and founders because obviously for a while there the founders had complete upper hand and Michael and I were hearing things like, listen, here's the valuation. You have 48 hours to decide <laughs> off of basically a pitch deck and a 10 minute call or something. And now I'm sure it's flipped. But how, how quickly did that dynamic change?
2: It, it took a while. Uh, you know, I think during 2022, we were still in the world where there wasn't full capitulation to the new reality. And remember, a lot of founders were raised in a period where they had only seen one thing up and to the right. I mean, 2009 could have been a lifetime ago. That was 14 years. So you had you know people that were in their 20s and 30s that had never seen the downturn. So like t- the beginning of 2022, is this just a blip that we'll get through? And, you know, int- and everything's transient, interest rates will go down, everything will be back to normal, the party's back on. Obviously, that didn't happen. Now, what we've seen is kind of this I always look at it, the 90-10, right? So, you know, in, in markets like this, you have 10% of the founders that can dictate those type of terms, say, hey, this is my valuation. This is what I'm going to raise. This is how quickly are you in or not. During the uh, the hot period of 2019, 20, and 21, it was reversed. And it felt like 90% of the, the founders we would meet were like, I'm closing on Monday. Here's my valuation. We're oversubscribed. And so I don't know that we're quite at the not 10, 90 now in terms of founders, but I think we're getting pretty close.
0: I had a, a, a small Roth IRA, um, that I had rolled over to, to AngelList to have fun and write some small checks. And, uh, in 2000, I guess probably 21. And I remember there was a bunch of like deals that just were, were completely filled in like 20 minutes. Yeah. Like, it was crazy. Like legitimately, like the the email went out, and these SPVs were were all accounted for, like literally in twenty minutes or less.
2: And and that um, what the, your experience was exactly what was happening all over the place, and and these and many of these companies were like the third derivative of something that had already been created too, and it was based on hype, and everyone is moving very quickly. There was a lot of dispensable capital and disposable capital, and if you remember you know, during that time, there was another asset class that was um, bringing people a lot of wealth, which was crypto. We had the meme stock. So people had this ultimate risk-taking mentality where they actually lost the notion of what risk was. And so, yeah, it's it's going to make it. And remember, you know, I, I think it was on Twitter, this, you know, the saying for crypto people of have have fun staying poor. Ugh. And it was just this you got to take as much risk as possible and that's what happened and now of course we've seen the seeing the
1: painful unwinding of it do you do you see any benefits or positives cuz like a lot of the dot com boom a lot of people said like well that totally built out the telecommunications that set the stage for the next level of the internet so is there anything good that got overfunded here that we might look back on and say you know what, N- not a lot of these companies made it but there was so much money invested that we laid the groundwork for the future are there any spots that you can think of that that happened to this time around
2: yeah, I mean, I do think I, AI, is, you know, is this incredible sort of platform, and I, I, I do think it's part of this new super cycle. Yes, there's going to be a lot of companies that are overfunded, but the companies that you know do make it are going to have uh, disproportionate uh, impact in terms of our lives on a go forward basis. So, but in venture is always that, right? So, if you think about venture from a return standpoint, it's the ultimate Pareto principle of eighty percent of the uh, returns come from twenty percent. And if you miniaturize that even further, of that 20% that's of, of companies that are driving those 80%, it's actually maybe 20% of that 80% of returns, maybe 20% of those returns are actually um, getting uh, actually let me start over. Let me do the math again. So that 80-20, that's that that get kind of says that if you go down one layer deeper, of that 80% of the returns it's probably 4% of the companies that it returned 64% of total returns. And 20% of the 4%, which is 0.8%, returns about 50% of returns. So you have such a right-skewed power law business that investing in venture, you just have to accept that there are going to be overfunding when things are very hot. But ultimately, there's going to be those companies that, Fit not a linear curve but an exponential curve, which is just hard for us as human beings to get our arms around. Typically,
0: Samir, you you were you just became the actual manifestation of the Zach Alfenakas gif, where he's <laughs> pointing with all the math and the numbers.
1: Yeah, yeah, I did, <laughs> I did. Uh,
0: um, there was a saying that I heard that might still be true, but it just it just is wildly like emblematic of the times, the the boom times. Like venture investing is not about what you say. No, to it's about what you say yes to. In other words, like maximize your surface area, because it is about the outliers. And and uh, I don't know if that's exactly how like true venture capitalists would would describe their philosophy, but whatever. Um. Okay. Uh. There's a great chart showing the breakdown in terms of who's investing in these companies. And so there's there's VCs which account for 30 percent of it. There's incubators and accelerators. There's private equity. There's CVC. I don't know what that stands for. What does that stand for?
2: The corporate venture capital. Okay, okay, got it.
0: Yeah, like Coinbase was a huge crypto investor. Um, All right, there's corporations, there's angels, and then there's other. And other is big. Other's twenty two percent. What do you What do you think is baked into the the other
2: slice? I don't know. I don't. I don't know what the uh, the that you know, individuals sorts. or endowments. Maybe I don't know. I don't. I
0: don't know. It
2: could be family offices. Could be family so, uh, offices. Could be government. Could be you know sovereign wealth. It's hard to actually know with that other 22%. But that 22% is actually pretty significant in terms of the entire pie.
0: Yeah, it's not. Yeah, that's why I was sort of thrown off. All right, just in terms of the average and median deal size, this goes back to your point earlier that these growth companies were effectively publicly traded companies that were just happened to be private, right? Like just in terms of size, there was, I mean, I'm just going to assume that there's not a gigantic gap between, say, a firm and Klarna, except for one was One's shares traded every day on a stock exchange and the others didn't. And so our firm was down 90%. Well, guess what? McLaren is down 90%. I mean, in real life, right? Like, and then they, they took a huge write down. So the average deal size year to date is 13 million, off from a high of 23 and a half million in 2021. But the median deal size is pretty much unchanged because the early stage companies, it doesn't really, really matter what's happening in public, market today, public markets today because these are ideas. These are companies that, uh, assuming a, a normal trajectory, would not even begin to potentially sniff public markets, you know, the one in a million company until 2030 or whatever, right? So they should be less impacted. Now, of course, there's impacts because, you know, appetite for risk and all that sort of stuff. But in terms of where seed companies get valued, that just is what it is.
2: I, I think that's right. I mean, there's, You know, we're we're basically buying out of the call. uh, I'm sorry, out of the money call options, right? That are long dated. So if you think about a seed stage company, in all likelihood, for a breakout company to exit at seven to ten years. So the only thing that you're really thinking about at that time is when you fund that seed company, is the company going to have enough runway? to be able to hit those milestones, to be able to get downstream financing, which we know is much more constrained than before. So that's Series A, that's Series B. In fact, one of the things that we chart and a lot of investors chart at the seed stage is graduation rates, right? So what percentage of your companies that you invest in at the Series A then go on to raise um, the next round of capital or seed to Series A? And during the heyday of 2019-21, it's hard to You know, call it the heyday. It was just recent. But, you know, ultimately, we were seeing funds at the seed level that 70 to 80% of their companies were getting Series A financing. And if you look at. What's normal? 30%. Wow. (laughs) And a lot of those seed to Series A were probably happening pretty quick too, right? Uh, Oftentimes within six months. And so think about the IRR bump. If I invest in a company at a $20 million valuation, six months later, company doesn't even need to have a lot of traction. Somebody else at the Series A who has a big fund comes in and invests at $100 million post-money valuation at the next round. I have this nice, shiny markup on my books. I can go back to my LPs and say, look how great I'm doing, and then raise the next fund. And so that is the one thing that investors have to think about at the seed level is, is this company going to get downstream financing? And how much what are the real milestones they now need to have? Because even Series A investors, they're not investing in companies that lack complete product market fit. Now, there's a couple of couple of maybe exceptions if it's deep tech or bio. It's just, you know, those are long gestation businesses. But your average SaaS or consumer company is not getting this huge round six months after the seed round. And therefore, that's the risk that you have to underwrite to at the seed.
0: I saw a crazy stat a couple of years ago, like, like and I'm making this number up, but it's you know, directionally right, Samir, you might know it, that even like 60% or whatever of companies that end up raising like a Series D or maybe even an E fail to have an exit. Like it's really, really, really hard.
2: Yeah. And well, and there's two ways to look at it. So I've seen that stat too. And and sometimes it gets a little bit mistaken. So not just because a company gets a Series D does not mean it's going to have a successful exit. Um, now it may still have an exit but that exit could be a fire sale of you know certain assets where nobody makes money the common shareholders get wiped out and only if a, a bit of the preferred stock gets to, gets uh, their money back and so that in in my estimation is a loss because at series D and above you should not in theory lose money as a series D investor but you know we are going to see a lot of that especially for those series D's that were done in 20 and 2021
0: So the IPO market, uh, there's green shoots. Uh, they were up 24% quarter over quarter. We had arm holdings, Birkenstock, Instacart, Clavio. What are you seeing or hearing from your community about, uh, about the window opening back up? Is this, is this a head fake or is it real? What do you think?
2: So so the windows, you know, in my estimation, never really close. It's just what the price point that people are willing to pay. And the, unfortunately, the price point that people are willing to pay right now is too low for the board to get comfortable with taking a company public. So if you think about what's happening at these later stage companies, you have really kind of three groups of shareholders that may have different incentives. You have the common shareholders being the employees. You have the late stage investors who might have invested at that series C, D, and E, that have these preferences they want to hold on to because they invested at a $12 billion valuation. The company goes public today, it might be at $3 billion. And then you have the early stage investors who, like the common shareholders, probably want everything to convert into common so they can get their notional um, you know, piece of the, uh, the exit. And so there's a lot of tough board discussions that are ha- happening in these companies because as a growth stage investor, if a company goes public, I'm probably going to lose my money, uh, or at least lose a large proportion. I'll give you an example there. And so, this was talked publicly about, you know, Airtable, which, you know, has been one of the, the growth stories in Silicon Valley. Last valuation was $12 billion. Um, You know, today, based on the reported numbers from a revenue standpoint, this could be a company that exits in the public markets for a 2 to $5 billion valuation. So if you invested at a $12 billion uh, valuation, and now this company goes public for $3 billion, you've lost you know, 75% of your stock price. Whereas if the company sold tomorrow for $2 billion, probably get your money back. And so that is the uncomfortable tension that's happening with a lot of these companies right now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Interesting environment for sure. All right. So where do you all fit in this ecosystem? Who is Allocate? Where the idea come from? Talk to us about it.
2: Yeah. So, you know, having been in the venture industry for 25 years, um, you know, venture has actually been a bigger and bigger part of the asset allocation strategies of big institutions, right? Yale went from, you know, less than 10% to now 22%. And it's really the things that you mentioned. It's the investing in kind of the future, like these game-changing companies, getting in early. The fact that you don't see companies go public in three to six years anymore. But what we saw Um, pretty commonly, you know, during the time I was both at SVB and First Republic, which, you know, hit a little bit different talking about those two banks today than it did last time I was on, is that, you know, there was a lot of individuals that simply just didn't have the luxuries of investing in the very best firms, right? So there's a lot of adverse selection. And so I'd see the returns that the institutions were getting and then the returns of the non-institutions. And coming from a background where, you know, my dad, you know, was a first- generation immigrant, didn't really have a lot of opportunities. You know, I didn't feel this was right. I felt like family offices, individuals, as they were inclining toward alternatives, simply didn't have a good place to invest responsibly in highest quality venture and really capture that power law. And so what Allocate does is work with advisors um, and families to make it easier for them to have the same luxuries as institutions. So this little corner of the market, which now has grown, and it might be only 5 to 10% of somebody's portfolio, but how do we make that such that that person, when they do invest that 5 to 10% in venture capital over some period of time, can, can enjoy the same benefits of return risk mitigation as the biggest institution? So that's what we are. We're a platform that enables venture investing in a responsible way.
1: Obviously, I hope that these more institutionalized VC firms offer better returns over the long term, but how are they set up to manage this type of environment? Where we've seen such a roller coaster like how how are they better positioned to handle it than the person who's just doing some fund on angel by themselves
2: so experience uh, so a lot of these firms have had experience going through cycles um you know it's it all comes down to people at the end of the day and you know what type of you know mental model they've created over a long period of time how they think about navigating these markets and you know, when you think about venture, it's usually down to three things that matter um, in terms of returns: it's sourcing, winning, and picking. And over time, you know, picking takes a long time to determine if anyone's good at picking. Like I just don't know within a ten-year slot if somebody's a real good picker if they got lucky. But over time, the more consistent you are in terms of helping founders, building your own brand, getting the right people on your staff the more likely you are to increase your probability of these upsized returns and be able to navigate, which probably is going to be a two to three year period where everybody has PTSD. And so sitting in front of managers, it's very like within five or 10 minutes, you can see who's in it for the longer and how do they think about navigating? And are they self-aware to make the necessary changes to adopt to a new economy?
0: You mentioned investors having PTSD. Is there still appetite for for venture capital on the part of family offices, REAs, et cetera,
2: it's it's actually a pretty interesting comment. Um, so on the family office side, I would say yes, because most people are so largely underallocated. And if you take history as any um, you know type of lesson, you've we've looked at the performance post an economic dislocation versus pre. And great companies are always founded like things don't change. Like entrepreneurs don't get out of bed and say because the markets suck. I'm not going to, you know, great entrepreneurs, at least, I'm not going to start a company, still do. And and so people view this as, you know, the starting of a new potential super cycle, really driven by AI, driven but now by better behavior and more sober behavior. So family offices are actually increasing, um, you know, from what we've seen. And that's not a blanket statement. I'd say that it's largely, um, you know, concentrated with family offices that are either new or have been through the movie before, and aren't in a place where they over so dramatically and are just liquidity-constrained. I think on the RAA front, there's a lot of um, advisor education that's needed. So how risky is venture? What is? What are the different flavors of venture? Because ri- venture can actually be risk-mitigated depending on how you invest, whether you invest in a fund of funds, a fund that's doing growth, versus a pure early-stage single-asset direct investment. So I'd say RAAs um, – Realize that the next generation of investors do want access to the private tech economy, but are still going through that educational process. And to be fair, RAs now have other options that they can invest client capital and, and still get a reasonable risk return, right? Private credit, things like that. And so we are seeing appetite. It's just a it's just a, a matter of education. Plus, letting some of the um, you know the pain that you know we have started to see further a little bit uh, more and settle a bit more before people, I think, start to get comfortable at scale. Are you seeing a bigger opportunity set now for for investing in the platform? Uh, I am. Yeah, I am. And, you know, we've, you know, as a company, like we've grown from, you know, nine people at the uh, beginning of 2022 to 45 today, scaled assets to, you know, a little over half a billion dollars during a, a time where we've seen this economic dislocation. And it all comes down to can you get the quality of assets, the right fund managers consistently on the platform? And those are the ones that, you know, if you look at historic performance, even through cycles, top quartile venture has been north of 25%. And so that's where we see the opportunity set increasing. We also think that we're still pretty early when you think about technological uh, curves, or you know, technology is an S curve, whether it's bio, whether it's AI, all of these things are still in the early innings. And so, Yes, if you take a long-term horizon, venture is a, a really interesting cl- asset class during times like this.
0: There's a lot of alternative platforms that have had a decent amount of success bringing advisors onto the platform, companies onto the platform, and assets onto the platform. But there haven't been haven't really been any that in in, in my purview that have done a, a good job on the venture side. And I think that's largely because, as you've mentioned, it's 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 sourcing, and you can't just You can't just go uh, knock on Mark Anderson's door and get access to A sixteen Z or somebody else. So, could you explain what might separate Allocate from others that have tried and failed to do something similar?
2: Yeah, and I think you have to go back to why would somebody that has plenty of capital, even in this market, uh, you know, take on capital from a new LP? And it's usually around three things. Number one you know, do you have a reputation of being a long-term advocate of the asset category? Have you been through times? Do you understand the space? And are you going to be in a long, for the long-term, not just a tourist? So that's one thing. The second thing they look for is, do I have some level of a relationship with you? Um, Have you, you know, like, why, you know, what is it about you that I want to do business with? And, you know, a lot of people have a hard time grokking this, but venture is such a relationship-oriented business versus, you know, private equity. Private equity, if you have a large enough check and you can show yourself to be a fund after fund investor, you're probably going to get access if you have the dollars. Venture does not operate like that. You really have to have these relationships. And the third is, have you provided any tangible value to the actual uh, GP or their um, underlying companies in some way? So we spend the last, you know, 15 years, at least me, working with these venture firms, and actually investing in them early when many of these were on a fund one, helping them get maybe their first LP check or introducing them to people. And so this goodwill that's been built over a long period of time is now manifesting in us, being able to get access to these hard-to-access names consistently. And at dollar amounts that historically have been reserved for the biggest uh, biggest institutions in the world. So if
0: advisors or family offices want to go onto allocate's platform, are they able to eliminate some of the single sector, single manager risk? Are they able to build portfolios to diversify their holdings in, in venture-backed companies or funds?
2: Yeah. So we I mean, we operate in kind of three different ways with advisors. One is, you know, you can pick and choose individual funds that we've approved on the system. We have a full diligence team that has invested over $10 billion in, in venture and private equity funds in the past. Everything goes through the strict vetting process. So we are fiduciary, but they can pick and choose, right? So we can bring on a name and I can't name, but let's say it's ABC company that we brought on and ABC, you know, company or ABC fund has 20, 30 companies. They may pick and choose and be comfortable with that. The second is vintage year funds where we create a basket of a number of funds that really reduces the overall risk, because now you're investing maybe in a basket of 350 underlying companies across the, uh, the basket of funds. Or for advisors that are sophisticated, they may want to build their own you know basket of venture funds and companies, and they can do that on the back of the Allocate technology. So think of that as a complete white label solution for somebody to roll out their own vintager solution to their clients.
0: Samir, if people want to learn more about accessing venture capital through Allocate, where can we send them?
2: Best is to either send them to myself. Uh, and so I'll just kind of give my email, make it public. Samir at allocate.co. Um, so not .com, .co, Or you can simply go to the allocate.co uh, website. And there is a apply, which um, will prompt somebody on our team to reach out to have a conversation.
0: All right i will do it. Samir, thanks for coming on. We appreciate the time.
1: Thanks, guys. Great to be on. Thank you. Okay, thanks again to Samir. Remember, if you want to learn more, allocate.co. Send us an email. What's the email address?
0: Animal Spirits
1: at the compoundnews.com. See you next time.